Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Whiskey, Jazz, and Leadership Podcast. Subscribe now so you don't miss a drop of straight talk you can't get anywhere else. We discuss the whiskeys to drink, music to listen to, and what it really takes to be an effective leader. I'm your host, Galen Bingham, the leadership strategist. Tonight's guest, eight-time author and national president of Gamma Xi Phi Professional Fraternity for Artists, Rashid Darden. Hey, what you drink? That's a big learning. That that's a big learning, and you are absolutely right that leaders don't have to have all the answers. As a no. matter of fact, some of the most iconic leaders, I'm talking about Andrew Carnegie, who mm-hmm. is. Mm-hmm one of the founders of the modern day corporation. Right. He will tell you, and he has said, I don't know anything about the steel industry. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know anything about making or processing steel. What I know is how to get people together and have them focus on a common goal mm. and how to knock down barriers that get in the way. Mm. Um, Henry Ford would tell you, I know nothing about making cars. You know, what What I know is how to get people together, how to have them focus on the objectives and how to how to cause them not to say no, how, how to cause right. them not to take no right. for an answer. And I think it's a lot of times the leader that feels like they have to be the smartest person in the room mm-hmm. that causes all the problems. Yes, yes. <laughs> because as a follower, I've got to make a decision. If I see my leader, if I see that leader, making a mistake, do I say, yes, sir, I will follow you over the cliff? Or do I say, uh, look, boss, that last one didn't go very well. Yep. <laughs> in my last job, I had something similar happen and that didn't go very well. This might not be a good idea. Do I feel safe enough to bring that? And sounds like you're creating that kind of culture where it's not your organization. It's not your organization. And boy, I tell you, I'm gonna, I'm gonna quote, I'm gonna quote my mentor, Ms. Ann McNeil. Come on, somebody! <laughs> <laughs> it's not your organization; it's your members' organization. Yeah. And when you create that kind of culture, then it becomes true fraternal. It sounds yeah. like you're doing that. I, I hope to. I hope to. And, and even further, I'm trying to impart to my members: it's theirs. But it's also not theirs. It's their children's. It's those people that we haven't met yet. 
are we doing what we're supposed to do now so that our children and the artists of the future can look back and say, they did a lot for us. Let's make sure that we are living up to that legacy. Because I'm telling you, like when, when I look back, I mean, and I know your viewers are mostly listening, but on the platform we're on, you can see my books in the back over my left shoulder. I'm a student of Black Greek letter organization, history and culture. You know, those are my Kappa books. Those are my AKA books. Those are my Q books. I don't care that I'm an alpha. You know, these are all successful organizations. And, you know, part of me getting into this was, you know, nosiness and like, ooh, I want to learn about everything. But really just seeing the sacrifices that were made and the predictions that were made that worked out in these organizations' favor. So when I think about Gamma Xi Phi, I, I do, I never want to be the smartest person in the room. I want to make space for smart people to join our organization. I want to make space for more women, for trans people, for uh, additional people of LGBT experience, and to create this thing where it wasn't about a personality. It wasn't about one person's vision. It's what we did together. Fantastic. I love it. I love it. And as you're listening, I'm going to talk directly to my listeners because you know, one of the things that's really dawning on me during this conversation is although we're, we're obviously talking about an artist fraternity and it would be so easy to say, well, gosh, you know, I'm not going to be joining an artist fraternity or I'm not going to be leading a fraternity. It would be so easy to say that. But I, I just know my listeners are saying, wow, you know, he's talking about some of the same things that I face at work, he's talking about some of the same concepts that I have to uh, figure out for the organizations that I'm a part of, and the same challenges that you've got to you've got to solve with finesse. <laughs> because let's be clear, I mean, if there are things that I could solve with command and control, I might choose command and control. <laughs> However, although command and control is expedient, it is very seldom effective long term. <laughs> It's very hard to get anything lasting, <laughs> lastingly productive with command and control. So you, you've right. got to gotta know how to work with emotional intelligence mm. to make sure that everyone is involved, everyone feels a part, that you're making it okay for people to bring their best. And so uh, I just really appreciate you know, all of the transferable concepts that you're bringing into this conversation, although uh, I, I think very few uh, of my listeners will ever have the opportunity to be exactly in the shoes that you're in, boy, they better be using some of those same tools that you're using. Listen, it, you don't have to be the national president of an arts fraternity to, to be a leader. People go to church, people go to work. You can be a leader at the post office as you're picking up your mail diffusing a situation between the person standing in front of you in line, you know, the person that's the obstacle between you and your business. I used to be a teacher. I consider myself a teacher still, even though I haven't been employed in that capacity over two years. And uh, I was in the charter sector and, you know, charter schools tend to be innovative and entrepreneurial and, and all of that. But almost every school I was at did not let the teachers lead. There was always an outsider. There, there was always a head of school who was unqualified or a, a charter turnaround organization that, you know, was racist, allegedly. 
and there's been been very few opportunities where one people were putting the right folks on the bus, but two letting the people collectively decide where they wanted to go. They try to make school into a Ford plant. Like they had read two chapters of a book about business and decided, well, this is what we're going to do. You know, and I just, I just had to, I'm going to interrupt myself and tell you a side thing that, that I used to tell my students. My students were 16 to 24 year olds who had dropped out of traditional school and largely were unemployed. We call those opportunity youth. In an effort to get them to understand their power in the school setting, I help them understand, just like the Facebook principle, whenever you get something for free, you are the product. They would say, what you mean, Mr. Darden? I said, they were like, I'm not getting nothing. I'm not getting, I said, you get the education, but make no mistake, the education is not the product. You are the product. Do you know that there is a dollar amount attached to your body being on our roster? Do you know that your body is worth more if you have a special education consideration? Do you know that your body is worth more if you are a a non-English speaker? And I used to tell them, why do you think there's more students that look like this and not like you in this school? Why do you think that number is growing? This is not about helping you. This is about the money. So it would behoove you to not let the government and this private entity get away with your, and I used to say $10,000 is probably more, might be less. Don't let them take the money. Get your GED and you turn that $10,000 into a $40,000, $50,000 job. That, my friend, is how leadership shows up outside of a fraternal context. It's about empowering the people to do what's in their best interest. Because what's in their best interest ought to be in everybody's best interest. Nobody wants to go out and fail. Nobody wants to go out and be poor. Nobody wants to go out and be broke. Like, you know, so so you got to take that mindset with you and, and, and not think that because other people achieve, that takes something away from your achievement. It's yeah. not how it works. That's not how it works. I mean, uh, that reminds me of a conversation we had in season one with Wyman Winbush, and he talked about the pie, mm. the pie analogy. And he said that, you know, everyone is trying to get a bigger piece of the pie. What you don't realize is that you've got your own pie. Yes. <laughs> I've got my own pie. And if I can show you how to get a larger piece of your pie, I should be willing to do that. Yep. And if there's some things that you're doing that can show me how to get a larger piece of my pie, then I should be willing to learn. It's not a zero sum game. And you are, just, you are reinforcing that. You are reinforcing that. Uh, well, you, you're the perfect person to help me answer this question because I have tried to draw the connection between business leadership and jazz. You know, in season one, I had the opportunity to speak with Craig Holiday Haynes, who is a legendary drummer with Sun Ra, and his father, Roy Haynes, just kind of revolutionized a jazz drummer, uh, the drummer in the jazz setting. In season two, we spoke with Matt Wiggler, who is a jazz and blues pianist, and he's just getting into the business world as an entrepreneur, but he's got some pretty long jazz and blues chops. And you are the president, the national president's president of the artist fraternity. So what's the connection between leadership 
you know, I say jazz because I, you know, I, I love jazz, but what's the similarities? What's the connection? In my mind, they fit, but I'm always looking for people to help me draw that connection. I think it can be summed up in three words, charisma, improvisation, and ironically, structure. So when I think about how I was introduced to jazz, I think about a young man named, well, he's older than me, but um, named Irvin Mayfield. And my friend took me, I was on one of my many trips to New Orleans, because I'm kind of a one-trick pony. Like, I don't want to go different places. I just want to go to New Orleans. And I was like, jazz club, mm, I don't know. Because I think about Bill Cosby and, and you know, just kind of corny stuff when I think of jazz. I used to. <laughs> and so she took me to the Hotel Royal Sinesta on Bourbon Street, their jazz playhouse. And it was called Irvin Mayfield's Jazz Playhouse. And he was this, you know, handsome, light-skinned dude, this charismatic dude. And, you know, and it's a brass band and it wasn't, it wasn't easy listening. That's what, what, you know, what my end was. So she takes me and he uses the platform to talk about, well, we brought jazz back to the French Quarter because jazz was on Frenchman Street, jazz was uptown, but, you know, Bourbon Street is what Bourbon Street does, which is drunk tourists and, you know, people acting crazy. But this was nice. The music was nice, and the band was playing all Charles Mingus. So I was like, Charles Mingus, let me look him up. You know, and I'm, I'm feeling real late, as the kids say, late boots. I was like, okay, so, so Irvin Mayfield turned me on to Charles Mingus, but the charisma, but also the improvisation of it. That, you know, like, so you had this band leader who's telling the story, telling the narrative, educating you about Charles Mingus, educating you about jazz in New Orleans. It is the kind of thing is, you know, there's a lot of white jazz folks out here and, and, you know, like, but this jazz is ours. And Irvin Mayfield really put that narrative forth. So the charisma, the improvisation of, you know, the musicality of it, it's like, oh, like, this is the point. Everybody gets a solo. Everybody does their own remix. Boom. And the, again, I'll say like probably five words by now, but there was still a structure to it. There was still the agenda. There was still, you know, the sales of the CD, the, the New Orleans Jazz Orchestra. And when I dove deeper into what Irvin Mayfield was all about, I was like, wow, this dude is super charismatic. He's this, like, you know, he's beautiful. Like, I want to follow this guy. And, you know, I'm, I'm thinking in my head, I'm like, oh, we should try to get him to be an honorary member in Gamma Zafi. I know y'all don't do honorary members. So, you know, you're probably honorary. But <laughs> for us, that's like, you know, you, you need to build your squad early. And then came the indictments. So I, Irvin Mayfield is probably my Marion Barry. Hmm. Irvin Mayfield admitted, you know, last year in, in you know, when he pled guilty to the the there were funds that he was responsible for that didn't stay where they were supposed to stay and he and his partner uh copped a plea and they're awaiting sentencing now and if you're familiar with that story or you know Marion Barry his his rise and fall and rise again it reminds you not to fly too close to the sun as a leader mm that there is no amount of improvisation and charisma that is going to shield you from white supremacy when it's time. People are calling for his head. 
Now, to me, I'm not saying that he was correct. Like, don't ever break the law. Don't ever misappropriate funds. Don't ever build a wax statue in your own honor. Like, don't do those things. Like, that is not what I'm looking for in Gamma Zi-Fi. I don't, it, it's gross. It turns my stomach. But always know that somebody out there, when you are Black and confident and male especially, and are doing everything else right, you can't make any mistakes in the public eye because people that don't look like us are waiting to find a way to to embarrass your legacy forever. It's a burden. It's a heavy yeah. burden that you have to be you have to be aware of. You know, that reminds me of uh, some advice that I got from one of my first mentors. And uh, we are we are planning to have him be part of this this conversation at some point. Mr. Joe Cavalier said in passing, never forget for a moment that you're being evaluated. And he just said in passing, he probably doesn't even remember saying it. Don't forget for a moment that you're being evaluated. Right. And it's easy to do, especially if you're in a leadership role and you've got all the trappings. You've got all the temptations, you know, they say that uh, power doesn't make you a man or a woman. It just reveals the kind of man mm, or woman that you, that you really are. want to be, right? Right. So great, great points. And I love your point about, you know, charisma, improvisation, and structure, because a lot of people, especially people who are not familiar with jazz, they'll just think that it's just a bunch of people up there jamming. Yeah. And mm -hmm. And it's all improvisation. And there, there's a good part of that, right? There, there's a place for that. But there's a lot more structure than people would uh, recognize from the outside looking in. Right. I'm, I'm glad you, you brought that up. I mean, there's practice too, right? There's practice and there's trust. The improv that we see when it's time to go to the jazz playhouse, in the moment, the experience definitely is, you know, feels like, wow, they just walked in off the street and did this. There's practice, guys. There's practice. There is, and there is an implicit trust between the musicians. Oh my just gosh, like there yes. ought to be an implicit trust in your boards, in your boardrooms, on your teams, in your staff. And, and that trust is not gained when you don't spend time together, whether it's virtual time, in-person time, social time that has nothing to do with the practice, that quality time together is really what builds the trust and, and whatnot. And then, you know, and there's, when I think about Irvin Mayfield and I think about, you know, his, his scandal, because that, that's what it is, there are people who feel that there is some opulence that comes with leadership, hmm. that, you know, the, the trappings of leadership are part of what make a leader. And when I think about true leaders like the recent, very recently departed Bob Moses and how, you know, his, his algebra project is probably one of the greatest civil rights projects of all time. You know, teaching math literacy to those who need it the most. That's a leader. You know, I was embarrassed that I'd never heard of Bob Moses before he died. And, and to know that he, there was not a bit of the opulence of leadership, like tells me all I need to know about him. So, you know, to, to those who look to an Irvin Mayfield or Marion Barry or people of that ilk or even in their own fraternities and sororities, think about, are you in love with the idea of what leadership looks like or are you in love with the people?
Mm. Because only one of those is a leader. The other is an actor. Wow. Oh, my gosh. There is so much truth to that. Oh, my gosh. Amazing. I'm curious. What do you wish that you had more time to do? <sighs> that makes me think of Hamilton, my brother. Um, I came to North Carolina to write. So I, I can't say that I wish I had more time to write because I'm, I'm supposed to be doing that full time. I don't know. I don't know that I need more time to do anything. I think what I want is additional resources in the form of more people doing more service in more chapters across this country when it comes to Gamma Xi-Fi. I don't know. I'm probably going to get reelected for another term. I, so in that sense, I don't need more time. I just need more people helping. I need more people to expand their idea of what a fraternity can do for them in terms of the idea of radical care for your soul that comes with, you know, a, a secular twist. I wish that the time that I had spent, I'm 42 now, um, I wish that the time I had spent earlier in my adulthood, I mean, I even started writing early. Like my first book was out by the time I was 25. I wish that I had made better decisions about the politics of being a student because not knowing the politics made me have a lower GPA, which I had fewer options in terms of graduate school. I ended up not liking graduate school. So I don't wish for more time. I wish that the time I had spent, that I had better advice and better, you know, kind of better opportunities earlier. And yet, I like my life a lot. I like the people I've met. There, there aren't too many people I wish I hadn't met. Well, you're, you're, you're doing a lot of the right things, man. And, and you are living an experience that I, I don't know very many people get to say that they've, that they've done. And so my hat, my hat is off to you, man. You're doing all the right things. You're concerned. You know, a lot of, a lot of my clients, you know, I, I will tell them you are concerned about the right problems. Uh, because I believe that the only thing worse than having the wrong answer is having the right answers to the wrong question. And so you are asking all the right questions, man. And uh, with that will only come the right and productive answers. And anyone who can list on the same profile that they love Charles Mingus and Prince. Oh, yeah. <laughs> can't be wrong. Can't be all wrong. Now, Prince... He is a, a a dude that really defied what the artist was supposed to be concerned about. Yes. Because, it, you know, there's the whole narrative of just, just shut up and listen or just shut up and play or just shut mm -hmm. up and... And he's like, no, it's about the art and I want to own, I want to own all of it. Yep. Yep. <laughs> I shall not be controlled or contained. Yep. What are some of the things that jump out at you about Prince that really stands out and makes him one of your favorite musicians? So, whew, for me, Prince is a family matter. So like my mom listened to Prince, so therefore I listened to Prince. My mom watched Purple Rain, so I watched Purple Rain. So it really, he connects me to my family in that way, but also the way that Prince sort of played around with sexuality, played around with presentation, you know, like there, there's no way, you know, even though, you know, Prince was married, all that kind of stuff, Prince was queer, you know, Prince, 
presented as queer intentionally. And I think that in him so doing and in David Bowie so doing, who's another one of my favorites, like that gave me space and a platform to be who I am as a well, no longer youngish. I'm over the hill in gay years, but, um, you know, to, to be who I am and authentic in every space. Uh, from a business perspective, he left a lot out there in terms of being the master of your own fate and the captain of your own soul. Mm. And from an artistic perspective, what I like about him while he was alive was that he only ever released what he felt like releasing. And what I like about his estate is that they're releasing everything because they know that it's genius. (laughs) So I think that the only thing Prince wasn't savvy in was not having a will. But I do believe in his estate. I think they're doing the right things because the people are always going to want more Prince. And we we would be happy, you know, if Prince's wigs and boots made an album, we would buy it, right? Because it's <laughs> it's part of the genius, too. And I, and I think also the idea that you can, and again, both Prince and David Bowie were in constant states of reinvention. When I think about them and I think about, I have, I have random heroes like Eric Braden from The Young and the Restless, Victor Newman, you know, didn't become Victor Newman until he was over 40. And when I hit 40, I was really looking at those examples like Victor Newman, Jeannie Cooper, Maya Angelou, other people that didn't really get their starts until they were 40. And they reinvented themselves and, and found their niches in a very significant way. So there are times where I feel like I'm behind the curve as, a, as, as an author. But then there are times where I'm like, dude, you got eight books. Relax. Like, who knew that I'd have eight books, you know, out by 42? Dude, I'll tell you, I mean, that that is no small feat. I mean, I, I've got two and I've been talking about writing my next one for the past four years. So that is no small feat. And anyone who can claim more than two has my has my undying respect. Well, I appreciate <laughs> because it. I mean, there there's some artistry that goes into that. There's also some courage that goes into that. Depending upon what you're writing, I think regardless of what you write, you 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 are summoning the courage to share a piece of yourself with a community that may not be totally 100% receptive to what you've got to say. And so it takes some courage with that. You, you, you kind of touched on a little bit of the courage with Prince, just the idea to play with the question of sexuality, mm-hmm. especially in the black community. That's usually nothing to play with in general. Right. But in the black community, right. <laughs> there's right. like an extra, an extra dose of, dude, are you, are you really ready for that? Right. And for him to play with it, you know, I've I've had a couple of guests on uh actually in season two, you know, Rada uh Jovovich just talks about just the courage to play in the spaces that she plays in with claiming and owning her label as queer. Mm-hmm. Uh you know, I had uh Don Angelo Bivens on uh in season two talking about how things really changed for him when he had the courage to own and step into who he really uh, is. Why do you think that even in today's awakening, there still is required to be a good degree of courage, maybe even courage just to say to yourself, this is who I am and this is what I represent. Why does that require courage? Why isn't that just as easy as saying the alphabets or, or counting, the, counting the 10? Well, I want to tell you a secret. I'm not courageous. I'm lazy. 
when I calculated how much effort it would take to be closeted, how much time would be spent hiding, how much life would be wasted, how calculating the risk of lying to your friends and loved ones all your life, I decided I'm too lazy to do all that. I would rather do the the path of least exertion and just be openly gay, (laughs) write the gay books that I wanted to read in the first place. I mean, I'm a direct person. I am an open book for the most part. Like, I'm just not that person that, and yes, such decisions are made with the knowledge that there can be great social peril, physical peril. Like, and and I never hide this part of my story. As an openly gay member of a fraternity, please believe there were threats. There were in-person threats. I was surrounded on a college campus in D.C. and told that the founders must be spinning in their graves because I dared to write a book about a gay man pledging a fraternity. And the fraternity wasn't even alpha in the book. It was a fictitious book. So I'm like, you look like a dum-dum right now. And, and I remember being upset that that happened, but also grateful that I knew exactly who they were. And first of all, well, the other thing is they're ugly and because haters are always ugly. So I want to say that on the record. But honestly, although those incidents happened and they're, they're worthy of discussion and they are a form of trauma, imagine the trauma and the harm I would have been doing to myself if I was living a lie. Mm. And that's oh. why I'm so I'm one of those people in their 40s that's like protect Lil Nas X at all costs. I don't care how much he twerks, he can be butt naked in a handstand all he wants to. That Lil Nas X is our son. He is our brother. He is the person that a lot of our favorites could not be while they were on this earth. <clears throat> Luther Vandross. And I... um. <laughs> Allegedly, allegedly. Yeah, I was. Hey, please put that on there. Please put that in there. <laughs> allegedly, <laughs> and um, I really applaud him for living in his truth. Do I wish I liked his music better? Yes, but it's not about the music for me. It's about the, the emblem at this point. And now that there are people who won't ever have to go what I went through or even what he went through just to be themselves. So that that's important to me and supporting knowing that. I might be at executive director level in terms of being a, a leader. I might be the person in charge, but I'm not doing it for me anymore. I'm doing it for the Pete, the little Nas X's of the world and those that come after. And that, my friends, is what you would expect to hear from someone who has embraced this leadership role for all the right reasons. And I, I just want to thank you for this conversation. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna cut this short right here because I got I'm gonna drag you into the VIP room, man. Okay. This this is about all this yeah. is about all I'm willing to share uh for free. Okay. So if you are not a VIP, you're gonna miss out. And this is why you need to just go ahead and up upgrade so you can follow us into the VIP room. But uh Rashid, man, this has been a great conversation. Uh, thank you so much for bringing in uh, and highlighting uh, the connection between whiskey, jazz, and leadership. Although, although you're sipping some Chirac, that's all right. That's all right. I mean, you know, that's, that's... it burns me up to have to support Diddy, but you know, 
<laughs> Diddy's cologne smells good and his Ciroc tastes good. I can't hey, be mad at the brother. It's hard. It's hard to be mad, right? Yeah, yeah. So with that, man, let, let's raise our glass. We're gonna toast out, and we'll see you on the side in the VIP room. Well, before Here's. we clink, clink, can I tell the people how to find Gamma Zai Fi? Pl- yeah, please do, please do, please do. Our website is gammazifi.com. G A M M A X I P H I. And you can find us on every social media channel at the same name, Gamma Xi-Fi, X-I-P-H-I. And, and I'll, I'll throw this in there too, man. If, if you do just like a half-hearted search on, on YouTube, you can hear some spoken word from this dude too. Oh, Lord. <laughs> <laughs> but hey, we're going to talk about that and a little bit more on the other side of this velvet curtain. Uh, so, man, if you've got a few more minutes, I'd love to bring you into the VIP room. Hey, it's not too late. Hit that subscribe button so you're sure to catch the next episode. If you're really enjoying the vibe, leave us a review or become a VIP for guests and show exclusives. Cheers. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.